0: Memories are timeless, some of them you can visit whenever you want. You come back to them over and over, you compare them with friends who have the same event stored in their brains, and then some memories float by at really bad times, like a dead body in the lake that you desperately want to avoid as you swim for shore, for presents, leaving memories behind, just floating there. Ugh. As years go by, some of the details from our memories fade, and a lot of times we're left with just the feelings we had in the moment. Oh, we laughed so hard that night. What were we laughing at again? Great films can be time capsules back to a different moment in our lives. For example, The Darjeeling Limited. The first time I watched that movie, it was in my parents' house just after college. The pirated copy we had was too out of focus to read the subtitles, and my friends Craig and Ian and my brother Zach sat on my bed as I projected it on the wall. Ian brought a bottle of wine that was so disgusting, we ended up diluting it with keystone light, and we sucked on unlit cigarettes because we thought it tasted like raisins. I also watched that movie when I was traveling in India with my buddy Dave, which was such a different and very cool experience and pretty surreal. I know this is a horror podcast, but I think you get my point. Great films and great viewing experiences imprint on us so deeply that they have the potential to capture incredible details of our lives along with them. I will forever remember Snakes on a Plane being one of the greatest movie theater experiences of my life. Also, hereditary for completely different reasons. The Thing, It, Parts 1 and 2, even M Knight's most recent disaster, Old. What a fantastic viewing experience and a memory I'm sure to hold on to today we are talking about a movie that is criminally underrated a film that holds up against the test of time a film that maybe you've never taken a moment to watch because it's 20 years old and stars that red-headed guy from csi miami and i would completely understand that impulse But if you haven't seen Session 9, I encourage you to pause this podcast and go watch it. I don't think it's included in any streaming platforms at the moment, but hey, sometimes $4 is worth it to rent a great film. Think about how much money you spend when you go to see new stuff in the theater. We've got a really cool guest with us to talk about the film and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we'll hear from you listeners in our Hi Ho segment about what your favorite scary movies are. But first, turn off the lights find a safe hiding space and fall in to haunting season. Good evening world and welcome to haunting season tonight. We're talking about session nine tonight. I'm joined with Cody of the living. Hello. We also have another guest on the show today. Robbie horror, who I met on Instagram. Robbie does horror movie reviews on Instagram. They are to die for Robbie. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Great to have you here, Robbie.
0: Yeah. I met Robbie on Instagram. I somehow came across your movie reviews and they happen in the caption of a photo on Instagram and they are really in depth, really well thought out. I do some movie reviews on TikTok and they are one minute and entirely based on what my level of entertainment was. And your reviews are like really well thought out, in-depth masterpieces, in my opinion. How'd you get started doing that?
1: Maybe back in high school, I think. Even since elementary school, I really loved to kind of show my teachers uh, my thoughts on not necessarily horror movies, but movies that I just enjoyed. And they'd say, Rob, keep writing. Keep writing. You're really good at it. And so I was always supported in that direction. And then through high school and then college, writing for the school newspaper, writing mostly I I, going back I noticed it was mostly horror movies like house of wax with Paris when I was in college and just kind of getting people to see movies that I liked that maybe critics didn't necessarily go for. And then having my friends come back and be like, you know, that movie actually was pretty good. Um, And so for a long time, I just kind of didn't do much writing. I'm, I'm more of a stage actor, but then about a year ago during the pandemic, I said, what am I doing with all these reviews that I Kind of, enjoy, I enjoy getting in depth with them. Um, I love the horror genre so much. Why not just start an Instagram? Just see what happens. And very, very fortunately, people like yourself, Josh, uh, showed great support and uh, admiration for what I was doing, and it just encouraged me to keep going with it. So I appreciate yeah, that. And, and-
0: what I think is really special about it is it's not just a copied synopsis, or it's not just a rundown of the trailer. It's your thoughts. I eventually just set up a call with you because we're both in the horror space. And I was like, you're doing a special thing. I'm doing a special thing. And you said podcasting was something you'd be interested in experimenting with. And well, here we are, friends.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited. Thank you, guys.
0: Session 9, when, when Robbie and I started talking about doing the podcast, we, we were talking about different films. I think on TikTok, I had recently done uh, my review of Session 9. And uh, you were like, oh, it's one of my all time favorite movies. Why is that?
1: I saw this movie back in let's say, the summer of 2005. So that was my first, uh, I think my one of my first nights home for my first year at school. So I decided to just rent a few movies and Session 9 was one of them. I had rented it one or two years before got 10 seconds in and just something happened and I just never ended up watching it. And there I was in my room, all the lights off, just kind of transfixed. And then an hour and a half later, the credits were rolling and I was just petrified. And as a horror fan who see, I seem, you know, watch, I don't even know how many horror movies to actually get that kind of reaction out of me was something that I hadn't really felt before and haven't, have only felt intermittently ever since then, but Session 9 is really a throwback to, because, like, the ghost story, whether it's film, novel, uh, whatever the medium is, it comes in so many iterations. you got, like, things like Poltergeist and Burnt Offerings and uh, The Frighteners, which are a little bit more overblown, maybe some with special effects. We have Gothica, the Amityville Horror, the the remake of Amityville Horror, the James Wan universe, uh, Sinister, um, in which the ghosts are very literal, the Ghosts and the Demons, like you see them very clearly, they're right in your face. It's more akin to like a, an amusement park ride where things are kind of spring-loaded. But then Session 9 I love because it kind of harkens back to films like The Haunting and The Innocents from the 60s. And the books that they're based on by Shirley Jackson and Henry James, where it's not so much about the ghosts necessarily, if there are even any, it's about the ambiguity and whatever the haunting is in the house, or in this case, the asylum, it's about what is it doing psychologically to the characters and how is it impacting them and their mental state and their decisions from there on.
0: So while we haven't had any spoilers yet in this episode, this is going to be an episode full of spoilers. I don't want anyone to be like, well, damn it, I can't ever watch that because I know the ending. So if you haven't seen it, I strongly suggest it. It's one of those films that just holds up. It doesn't have a time period. Maybe the cell phones look a little bit different. You know, maybe there's a a thing here or there, but it really doesn't exist in a time that's hard to believe or that has, like, blatant technology that we don't have anymore. It just is. It's as timeless as a ghost story.
1: 100%. Yeah, I I
2: think I might be in the wrong podcast because I watched uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. (laughs) Not Uh Session (laughs) 9.
1: kidding kidding I joke, we're, I we're, joke, we're, we're I gonna joke. we're gonna discuss an Ed Wood right now <laughs> yeah
0: I am oddly oddly prepared for it
1: <laughs> let's go for it no
0: no
2: but Robbie you bring up some really good points about like this uh, it almost reminds me of like the Spielberg kind of thing with jaws where it was like don't re- just open the door a little bit but don't open the door completely I love those horror movies that open the door completely and it's just like gore slash blah, 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 blah. But if you just creak it open like Jaws also has the same thing, you don't really completely see the shark. And of course, when you do see the shark and maybe what Jaws do, it's like, this is so like hilarious. But leave it up to the viewer, their mind, and like they create their own horror. And then also you're you're left like speculating like, what if is it? There's so many things left unanswered and it just I, that's what I I enjoyed like the Exorcist and the shining where you don't really see but you know there's something happening, but you don't know fully what it is.
0: Yeah, the horror kind of happens in your mind. Yeah. One thing for me that I remember from when I first saw this, my brother and I are huge fans of really bad horror movies. And I think that is something that's unique to horror fans in general, is that we can watch both really excellent horror films and really poorly made horror films and get the same enjoyment out of them. And when I saw that David Caruso was one of the stars of this. I put it on with the purpose of like, oh, this is going to be a great movie to make fun of. That did not happen. There was no moment that we made fun of it. Maybe the first time he shows up, we were like,
1: ow, you know? (laughs) Take it off your sunglasses very slowly. Yeah, 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 exactly.
0: You very quickly realize like, this is a film to be taken seriously.
1: Yeah, Cody, you hit the nail on the head just now. It's the ambiguity of it all. And it's not until the final seconds, which we'll get to at some point, where everything kind of clicks. But up until then, you're being given information from a very warped perspective, which is our lead character, Gordon. By the end, we we understand that the person who has been kind of causing the calamity around the asylum is Gordon. And uh, when you look back at it again, all of a sudden all the pieces mostly fit into place. And then it's even scarier the second time because you understand that the entire team was in danger from the very beginning. And not, neither us nor them realized it. Um, do we want to do like maybe a short plot synopsis or
0: yeah we absolutely should are you prepared with that or should i just go through
1: let, 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 let's let's go for it yeah i feel like I'm, i don't want to get ahead of myself for sure
0: today's episode is brought to you by mixtape massacre the 1980s styled slasher killer board game you can have up to six players, each one some sort of paranormal slasher monster type creature with a cool origin story and a great character design. You take turns roaming the town, racking up kills and collecting trophies like severed hands, teeth, and eyeballs to try and come out with the most kills or to be the last surviving. It takes about 15 minutes to learn and around 90 minutes to play. With six people, you can check it out at hauntingseasonpod.com/mixtape. And if you want to buy the game, we'll offer you 10% off, which is more than 0% off. So why not? It's 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 a cool game. Right now it's my favorite game. You should at least check it out. So Session 9 is a 2001 American psychological horror film directed by Brad Anderson, who had only written uh, romantic comedies up until now. Basically, it's uh, asbestos workers trying to fix up this old mental asylum. They all have their own backstory and their own things that they're struggling with, including a young guy who's afraid of the dark. And they have different experiences that feel like hauntings, or they discover a secret room, or they discover these secret tapes. And you kind of go off with each character and get a chance to learn about them and feel their experience individually and also as a team, which makes You know, this movie really, really kind of special.
1: Definitely. And within the first few scenes, what the movie does beautifully is really establishing, like you said, the dynamic of the team. These are all union workers. They're all uh, blue collar guys. They all have their own kind of interpersonal drama. Uh, You know, this person's dating, this person's ex. Uh, These two guys, you know, Phil and Gordon, which is David Caruso and Peter Mullen, they've been working together the longest, so they understand really how to push each other's buttons. They understand each other's uh, insecurities, which, as the film goes on, uh, they really start to kind of get at each other and prey on those nerves a little bit, uh, which adds to the tension, because for the vast majority of the film, the audience has no idea who's telling the truth, where certain characters have gone, and the drama between the, the guys, it just makes things worse.
0: Not to mention it's shot in a real rundown asylum. Danvers, right? Danvers. Danvers, danvers you know, with real kind of mazes and, and hallways. And, and while most of the film, because of the status of the building, I guess you would say, uh, was all shot in a small portion of it, you really do feel like you get to explore the, the vast expanses of, of the actual building.
2: I yeah I was gonna say every single time they show like they did like the the ver- they showed the grounds and they did these like big uh, shots of the outside I was like I cannot wait for session ten when there's like some sort of like house flippers they come in and they turn it into like some sort of air like a, a hotel or a B and B kind of thing I was like this has so much potential you could have you know all these things converted into hotel rooms. And you could have scary stories. You could have a Denny's. You could have like a, a perfect place inside there and you just go there. And I thought,
1: oh, this would be great. <laughs> they actually did turn it into an Avalon apartment complex. What? Yeah. So it's still standing. It's Well, that's the thing. I really, I looked it up about a month or two ago, just out of curiosity, because I heard that it was turned into an apartment complex. I thought that they they leveled the whole thing and built something over it. No, no. If you look up Avalon Danvers, it's very much the same horrifying building just now with a swimming pool and a courtyard and stuff. I'm putting out
0: an open call to Brad Anderson. We want session 10 and we want session 11. We want to turn session nine from uh, an amazing one-off into a mediocre franchise based uh kind of in the way that we have uh paranormal activity right so so the building continues to go the haunting continues to go we just meet new characters along the way and <laughs> and it can get worse and better and just give us more yeah absolutely exactly. so um david caruso uh gave some interviews when the the film was coming out and talked about uh like i mentioned how most of the building was unsafe for shooting and uh, also claimed that the sets did not need to be dressed as all the props featured in the film were already inside the building. How creepy is that? Terrifying. Yeah. And so he said, uh, this is a direct quote now. It was a place you never got comfortable in. It wasn't like day three and we were throwing water balloons because it was so much fun to be there. It was always scary. You can really feel the pain of people that went through at Danvers. It's a rough environment. It's not fun. It's on the film. They didn't have to dress any sets or anything. All of that stuff was just sitting there. The federal government walked away from it about 30 years ago. It was a terrifying location.
1: Well, even on the poster and I think it's the very first shot is this you know it's a wide shot of this creepy hallway it's dank it's dark you feel just that that dead air and right in the center is just this lone wheelchair that your mind kind of fills in the blank like whose was that what happened to them what happened like what's happening in this building you from the poster alone let alone the actual film you get that um, really terrifying chill uh, just from that one image but also there's that scene where Hank Uh, who is kind of an opportunist, and he's always looking for the next gig, he ends up finding a hole in the wall in the basement filled with the belongings of patients that have just been discarded in, I believe, the furnace of the morgue area.
0: Yeah, coins and teeth. Coins, yeah. And
1: And a lobotomy. uh, I'm not sure what that thing is called, but...
0: Instrument? Uh, we'll it,
1: a instrument? instrument, yes. So I wonder if any of that was was actually real.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, Cody knows this from my YouTube show. Uh, the, my very first episode. I did a little bit of urban exploring when I was a kid um, in high school. And this all rings very true. I remember going into this old age asylum or uh, old age home that had burnt down and you very well would see a wheelchair sitting in a pool of light at the end of the hallway. Like, that's just exactly how it is to be in an abandoned place.
2: Now, to go back. So first, uh, the thing you talk about the wheelchair, like I was immediately drawn to the changeling or Changeling with uh, Georgie Scott. And I was like, oh, man, this, which is one of my favorite horror, you know, uh, murder mystery kind of flicks ever. But then also to go even farther back about the characters and who they are, I kept on thinking they're coming home. It was almost like I was going to be, like, reading a story from Josh or hearing a story from Josh where it was like, oh, it's, it's it's set in the present day and it's all these characters, but really it's set from back in time and they're actually one of the patients inside there and they're just playing inside their mind is is what I kept on thinking. I was like, okay, one of these people They're we're going to cut to at like the, the end of the movie and they're going to be sitting in like, and just imagining what would, you know, if they could get out of this
1: place, this is what Especially it would be Especially the like guy and,
0: who finds the treasure and disappears yes. when he's walking in and everything. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Which by the way, that scene with Hank in the basement at night when he returns to actually retrieve the stuff and get out of there, has, I think, the only legitimate jump scare in the movie. And because the film does not do that, except for that one instance, I jumped out of my skin when I first saw that. And every time I show it to someone, they have the same, like, oh my god, reaction. Because you're just not expecting it after all that time, where something appears at the end of the hallway.
0: Yeah, that and, and all the chasing that happens with those like uh, narrow chain link split hallways and stuff. Whoa.
2: Which was, like, hilarious because I thought, like, okay, so back in the day were patients and also, like, doctors just allowed to roam free and they would just be like, oh, I'm I'm a patient so I must go this way. And, oh, I'm a doctor. I don't want to go down this route because it's, like, it seems like, what? These are the kind of things you don't question funny. very
1: much, yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it, for the image of it being like you know, of course he's going to go down the patient's uh, the patient's right. You're like, why wouldn't he? Sure. But yeah, that scene is genuinely terrifying.
0: All right, I'm going to jump into the top of the movie here. Gordon Fleming is our main character, the owner of an asbestos abatement company in Massachusetts. He makes a bid to remove asbestos from an abandoned psychiatric hospital. Desperate for money, he promises to complete the job in just two weeks. And when you see this place, I mean, it's, it's massive. It's a, it's a ridiculous ask. So it adds a lot of, of extra tension to the group already before they even start. His crew includes Mike, a law school dropout who is knowledgeable about the asylum's history convenient. Phil, who is dealing with his grief over a recent breakup, not convenient. Hank, a gambling addict, very not convenient. <laughs> and Jeff, Gordon's nephew with a pathological fear of the dark. It just gets worse as you go down the list.
1: Yeah. That first scene is is really fascinating because out of all the instances in the entire film, all the events that take place, there's really only one clue that I can point to that the film is supernatural, because again, it walks that line very, very finely, and it's when Gordon is being shown the uh, the, the separate wings and whatnot, a la The Shining, where it's a very casual walkthrough, explaining different cells and where everything is, and he kind of goes into his thoughts for a second and hears a low, demonic voice say, hello, Gordon, and he snaps out of it. That is the only instance that I can point to off the top of my head where you can point to and say, this movie is more than just disassociative identity disorder or whatever kind of um, explanation you can think of.
0: Yeah. And, and that tension, though, rides when you're with Gordon, like when he goes outside to sit on a stump near a grave. You know, there's there's something happening. I don't know if it's with the music or just you're piecing things together in your mind, but there's there's like a uh, just a an energy anytime you're with Gordon by himself.
1: And and it's after that he hears that voice, where he immediately becomes taken with the building and and has to you know, bid for it. And he has to kind of be like, no, we're going to do it in this many days. You know, I'll I'll hire an extra guy. And he, for whatever reason, that there's that switch that he needs this job and it has to be this one.
2: Yeah. And I kept on thinking that I was going to be lulled into his story and that there was actually going to be like a surprise. It's somebody else, you know, he's actually the good guy who's trying to, but really he is, he's the protector. He's the security guard. And he is now, I mean, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it seems like Simon has, gone, you know, taking him over. And now he is a protector of the grounds and he's got a job to do. Just like, you know, Jack Torrance in The Shining where it's like, okay, here's my job. But I kept on thinking like, okay, th- they're trying to lead us to follow Gordon and it's going to be somebody else who's actually evil.
1: Yeah, because um, from the very beginning, Gordon is very sympathetic he has a new baby. He's got a wife that he, that he loves. He just has this kind of withdrawn tired quality about him Uh, you don't get to know any of the characters in the past very much that kind of details left to your own imagination but the guy that we meet is just someone who just projects a very sad aura and you want to your heart goes out to him the whole time and if anything it's Phil who is constantly uh, kind of being an antagonist not to just Gordon but to the entire team he's always calling you know F this F that guy this guy is not you know he's not trustworthy blah 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 the movie kind of points you in his direction so that by the end by the climax, you're really not sure who is doing what, but you have an idea that it's Phil. So
0: while surveying the job site, Gordon hears a disembodied voice that greets him by name, but ignores it. You know, as we pointed out, it does affect him and it does sort of like change his energy. As the men begin their job, Mike discovers a box containing nine audio taped sessions with Mary Hobb. Mike begins listening to the tapes in the ensuing days, which contains sessions in which Mary's psychologist attempts to unveil details surrounding a crime she committed at her home to death. Decades prior. In the sessions, Mary exhibits numerous personalities who have unique voices and demeanors. So while this isn't necessarily paranormal, this is an oh-no moment. This is this is for me where the movie starts to like really be like, oh, something bad's gonna happen.
1: When Mary's voice starts changing
0: well yeah because there's something I it's probably from watching lots and lots of horror movies but there's something about the tapes playing back and hearing these sessions and then the sessions aren't going the way that the that the psychologist hopes that they will go and things start to you know unravel a little bit like there's something kind of deep inside of you that's like crap you know, I just recently watched The Sixth Sense, and uh, I had totally forgotten about the tapes that he listens to. And there's that same feeling. You're playing back the tape, and you hear the static of the old technology, and it gets me.
1: Like, same thing with um, The Changeling, where they have the seance scene, and he goes back to listen to it, and there are vo- there's the voice of, uh, of, a, uh, of a young boy hidden underneath all the static and all the tape whirring. Um, but yeah, the tapes for Mary Hobbs and her conversations with her doctor are horrifying for numerous reasons not just because of the aged quality to your point where it's a lot of glitches and it's very it, the octaves drop continuously um, but then when Mike is listening to it we get I can't remember if we meet Billy or princess uh, which alter which identity we meet first but his his eyes kind of Bug out, and he looks towards the tape recorder like, "What the hell?" And his reaction invariably matches ours because we're not, we're just not expecting it. And it's also the the fact that we know that the movie's called Session Nine. We see that there are nine tapes, so it's the countdown. What will each tape reveal? And it's an extremely clever uh, screenwriting device that the plot with the men coincides thematically with uh, with Mary's story and how that all pans out.
3: Which
2: makes me so happy and grateful and, and thankful that this thing was an independent somewhat. And, you know, Caruso was at the height of his fame, I think, when this movie came out, right? I mean, he was TV, NYPD, blue guy. But for the most part, this is pretty much independent. And so I kept on kind of somewhat thinking like, if Hollywood were to take this over, like if this were a big budget movie, they would change the script completely and be like, mm, that's
1: not really scary. We, we'd actually have Mary literally, you know, the, the, the specter <laughs> of Mary literally yeah. with her hair down kind of staggering yeah, yeah, through the right, hall. right,
2: right. Start floating it's around.
1: Sitting in the and, chair with her hair over yeah. her face, for sure. Right. But it does, it toys with that a little bit because there are uh, scenes shot at night with Apparently, no, none of the guys are in there at night, and we see the shadow of something drifting through the, uh, the bathrooms and the different hallways and stuff like that. So we know, despite all logic, there's something in there at night that is crawling. We don't know who or what it is. Um, and then, of course, something attacks Hank. So we're like, all right, clearly, whatever it is, whether it's supernatural or if someone's doing it, our minds, I'm sure, led towards supernatural Um, Because we're now meeting Mary and all that.
0: Yeah, but it's not entirely ruled out that like the 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 building's huge. There could be someone still there. There could be an old patient still there. You know, like you have no idea.
2: Yeah, they talk about that. Remember, there was like the homeless population that they were, or there were like they were coming back into like they had to call the cops and all this kind of stuff and saying like, oh, once they released all the patients or this place closed down, they were coming back in and we had to call the cops to keep them out. So you, it makes you kind of think like, oh, is there just like some sort of ex patient that is. You know. That's a
1: really good point. And it's, that, it makes it even more frustrating when Hank vanishes and they don't immediately start trying to figure out, is he still on the premises? Which, they, they to be fair, they probably wouldn't. They'd assume that he ditched the job and went somewhere else. But you're like, no, no, I need to know now what happened to him and who got it. Like, you know, uh, where is he?
0: Yeah, it's a liability. What I can't figure out is if I found these tapes and I was listening to them back in this like dingy, horribly scary basement And I started getting freaked out. My eyes did that thing where I was like, whoa, her voice changed. This is freaky. I wouldn't keep going down there. I would bring the tapes somewhere safer, somewhere like outside where I'd be like, oh, okay, I can listen to this and I feel like I'm being watched.
2: And this was the guy who was the former like he was going to law school. Right. And, And then he like for some reason he dropped out. And then now he's going downstairs and checking this stuff out, which is like uber creepy. So it makes you want to think like, why the hell did you drop out of school? What got you out of being a lawyer? And then now why are you doing this?
0: Like that's maybe that's why though, like maybe someone who's a little more academic than I am. I'm someone who lives with a lot of feelings. Maybe someone who's more logical or, or, you know, more brain, more cerebral. There you go. Uh, Someone smarter. Um, Maybe, (laughs) (laughs) maybe someone a little more collegiate might be like ghosts. Let me listen to this tape. The voices are going
1: to pop out of the tape and get me.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. To me,
1: I very much think they would. I, I would. There's no way I would be down there. Period. Even like if, if even if it was my job, like you guys can probably handle the basement. I'll do other stuff up here. But you know, it's also just same thing with the doctor and patient divergence. It's it's all establishing mood. And if he were to bring them to his car, or to his how it just wouldn't be the same as being kind of stuck in that cramped room with all these files everywhere. Um, Yeah. And
0: he did all that work to get electricity running down there. So meanwhile, while removing asbestos from the tunnels running beneath the hospital, Hank discovers a cache of antique silver dollar coins and other valuables scattered from the crematory. Late at night, Hank covertly returns to the hospital to retrieve the items and discovers a lobotomy pick, not instrument a lobotomy pick. Among them, Hank becomes frightened by a series of noises and witnesses a shadowy figure in the tunnel. As he flees, he is confronted by an unknown assailant.
1: Which you just kind of stumbled upon Chekhov's gun in, in a sense because we've seen that pick before, and it's when Hank takes Jeff and kind of jokingly shows him how to use it, and that's when the, for the for any audience members who didn't know how a lobotomy is performed, that's when you're like, all right, well number one, that's going to happen to someone on the crew, and that exact pick, it may, it's not that exact pick, but someone's gonna this will not turn out well for one of them, and of course it's Hank because he's the one who was uh, who was down there when he really shouldn't have been, but uh, that scene is. Truly ghastly.
2: Yeah. And then it makes you think like, oh, geez, you know, his, his ego, his like of going after gold and all this kind of stuff. And he's the one that's been there like, whatever I'm bold, you know, brazen and all this kind of stuff. And then he is, you know, Hey, curiosity kills the cat. And also, you know, maybe it's something to do with the Bible of, uh, you know, I don't know the 10 commandments of, you know, you, you go after riches and you go after gold. And this is what,
0: who knows? Curiosity lobotomizes the cat. <laughs> uh, so when Hank fails to show up to work the next day, the others learn he broke up with his girlfriend and speculate he may have won money gambling and left town. So here, here we come back to his gambling issues. It's rather convenient. Like, so what do you think happened here? So like he's in the basement. He finds this money. Does he break up with his girlfriend then? Because he's like, I'm going to run off with this money and like go leave another life. Or does he break up with her after the the figure shows up and then something happens?
1: I don't think that that the girlfriend is involved to that extent. I think that he intended to go down there, get whatever he could, cash it in, and then maybe bring her along to whatever he was going to do with that. We never really hear from from Amy uh, after that. We know that Phil tries to use her as a pawn to try and say... You know, oh, well, Hanks. I told you he wasn't trustworthy. I already talked to Amy. She said that he went to casino school, and of course, Gordon calls out the fact that no, no one on the team actually heard Amy say that. Uh, so as far as we know, Amy also doesn't have any idea where he is. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe,
2: maybe Gordon was doing something like behind the scenes and calling
1: Amy and trying to mimic. It's possible because he's also been telling the team this entire time that he went back home to his wife and that he's been talking to her. That he hit, you know, that he uh, ended up hitting her just out of reflex because she spilt water on him. So if he's able to have that kind of foresight to lie about that,
2: he's got everything set up. It's, it's it's Simon, you know, who's running the show here, basically. True. And you know, Gordon, it's gone.
0: So we get an additional worker on the team who's got the best name out of everybody, Craig McManus. <laughs> Craig McManus, PI. Um, he's not a PI. He's just hired to take Hank's place during working hours. Gordon repeatedly attempts to contact his wife, Wendy, but she screens his calls He confides in Phil that he slapped her after she inadvertently splashed him with a pot of boiling water and that she refuses to answer his calls or let him see their infant daughter. In a stairwell in the hospital, Jeff witnesses Hank staring out a window, wearing sunglasses, talking to himself. When Jeff retrieves the other, Hank has vanished. And this happens on the other side of a chain link. Like I mentioned, the the hallways are are broken up. I don't know if it's male, female or like, uh, you know, officer and patient you know, like what, what those chain links are for, but he's on the opposite side of where Jeff, uh, finds him.
1: Yes. And that's where the drama between the men really starts to escalate because everyone has had a different story of what happened to Hank, what they saw, what they didn't see. And that's when they really start getting each other's faces. And, you know, Gordon starts demanding the phone so that he can talk to Amy and things really escalate. And that's where we also get the one signature Caruso moment where, um, him and Gordon are going at it. Gordon storms off and Caruso says, Hey man, fuck you. And like the camera pulls in really it's it's a chef's kiss moment.
0: <laughs> it's really magical. And and it feels like the catalyst for this too. Like it it sucks for Jeff that it's him because he's the youngest. He has this fear of the dark. He is constantly trying to like show off to the guys and, and be like strong and everything. So it really just comes off when he sees Hank there and goes and tells the guys it's really easy. For the guys to be like, dude, shut the fuck up.
1: You're seeing stuff. And he's like, no, I'm telling yeah. you, it's Hank. And it's it, it's great drama because we know that he's telling the truth. Or at least we, from his perspective, we know what, what he has seen. So it's it's frustrating and it's enthralling just to kind of see, you know, everyone's ulterior motives come to light. They all have reasons to kind of keep things from each other and, and whatnot. It,
2: it was around this time, like with the boiling water, like I, I guess I missed that in the first Part of it, I don't know if they like showed that kind of stuff. I think but they
0: do like blips of it and you okay. get more each time they show it, you get a little bit more of the story.
2: But then hearing Mary talk about the China doll and something and then realizing like she lost her because of that situation, what she witnessed and what she saw, she went nuts and she killed her entire family. And we, like, I assume, like, oh, it's Simon who took over. she, fa- she He found her, or it, it found her uh, vulnerable and took over. And then so with the water kind of coming back, it was like, oh, that was,
1: I, okay, so Simon is taken over now. That was Gor- know, that was Gordon's Gordon. China doll moment. Right, exactly. A, a sense of that. That's definitely, that's how I read it. And that's one way to interpret it for sure.
0: So after arguing for a little bit and saying, hey man, fuck you, the men split up and search for Hank while Mike instead is compelled to continue listening to the tapes. Jeff and Phil separately descend into the tunnels to search for Hank. Phil finds him half nude, still wearing sunglasses and muttering to himself, which is when we start to maybe wonder, uh, is Simon inside of him?
1: Well, what he's muttering, he keeps saying, what are you doing here? As we come to see in a, in a brief flashback, that's the one. That's what he asked Gordon before he was attacked. Um, so when Jeff sees him, and then later on when uh, Phil sees him, he just keeps saying, what are you doing here? Which is just a creepy thing to ask when you're all alone in the dark and someone stumbles across you. You're just like, no, 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 what are you doing here, man? Uh,
0: shortly after, the generator runs out of fuel, leaving Jeff trapped in absolute darkness. Oh, poor Jeff. Man, he just... He gets it the worst. Mike restores the electricity and continues listening to the ninth session tape, which reveals that one of Mary's malignant personalities, Simon, who uh, was responsible for her stabbing her little brother and parents to death. Meanwhile, Phil finds Gordon in Mary's former hospital room, staring at photos from his daughter's baptism, which he has pasted on the walls. Jeff subsequently emerges from the tunnels, resurfacing in an outbuilding and is attacked by an unseen assailant at the company van. Oh, Jeff.
1: I know, poor Jeff. And that scene is just beautifully filmed of, of Jeff wandering through all the uh, different, I think, asbestos uh, suits or hazmat suits. Because you know, in, in of course, because it's so beautifully lit, those lights are not going to be you know, lasting very, very long. And we see the generator kind of sputtering and we're like, Oh no. Um, so it's a classic scene that we've seen in many horror movies of the lights slowly going out down the hall. But in this case, there is a real world uh, explanation for it, which is really clever.
0: Yeah. It's nice. And then, and then you get that like a really, really justified running down that hallway or, truly terrified jeff and then your heart breaks because you know how much he hates the dark and then again they kind of like flip it when he's at the van and he recognizes the cameraman coming towards him and the camera starts to speed up and then it's it's the end for old jeff
1: yeah shame i think it's like a blackout immediately as soon as he uh, reaches out for whoever that person is um the camera just shuts off and you're like it's truly baffling. You're like, wait, what's happening? At that point, the tension is at an all-time high, and then it just cuts out.
0: Yeah, and this is what you were talking about, Cody, with uh, the the parallel to Jaws of allowing the audience to piece things together for themselves as opposed to showing absolutely everything. And it it does wonders in this movie to just leave you hanging and like, no, I want more, but I also don't want I also more. Don't
1: want to know what's going on
0: the following day Gordon arrives at the hospital to find Hank wrapped in plastic sheeting in one of the rooms the lobotomy pick protruding from his eye Gordon is confronted by Phil who repeatedly tells him to wake up before vanishing in front of his eyes Craig enters the room and witnesses Gordon standing over Hank who is barely alive Gordon attacks Craig forcing him into a headlock before pulling out the lobotomy pick from Hank's eye socket and very unsanitary stabbing it into Craig's Gordon in a disassociate state proceeds to find the body of each of his crew members laying out in various rooms in the hospital and recounts his murdering of each of them he also recalls his killing of Wendy his infant daughter and dog after Wendy spilled the boiling water on him. Distraught, Gordon confusedly attempts to call his home to apologize to Wendy. As he stares at the bloody scene, an excerpt from the ninth session tape plays. During it, Mary's doctor asks her, and where do you live, Simon? To which Simon responds, I live in the weak and the wounded, Doc. Really, really creepy ending. They just nail it.
1: Really, a, a truly exceptional ending. In horror movies you know, as long as they've been around, sometimes do not stick the landing. With the last 15 minutes, the climax, to the credits, sometimes it they show too much, or it just doesn't, for whatever reason, dramatically, it might not work. This is, I think, one of the best endings to any horror movie that I can think of, where everything comes together in a gruesome fashion. The full weight of the situation hits the viewer, like, like a ton of bricks. And then the last line, I live in the weak and the wounded doc really thematically and narratively kind of clicks everything together so that you really are left with some semblance of an understanding of what's happened over the last hour and a half to Gordon and to all the men in the, the cast as well.
0: And you're also left with a lot of fear because we're all weak and wounded to a certain extent. We, you know, if, if you've, if you've grown up into an adult, you are weak and wounded in some sense of the word. And so Simon could be out there stalking for another host, and it could be you.
1: Absolutely. I said this, I think, in the, the very end of my own review, where it's I said, you know, the horror is not these creepy uh, cells at night. It, the horror is not some ghost who's like, segregated. the horror is is human. That's what's at the very pitch black uh, core of this film. And it's very beautifully executed, beautifully done. And Peter Mullen, as Gordon, we haven't really touched on the actress too much, but Peter Mullen, really goes from being so sympathetic and so heartbreaking to being so horrifying and also heartbreaking simultaneously in that last scene where he, he's just sobbing over the phone, trying to talk to his wife, trying to uh, see his child that he'll never see again. And you just, it's a lot of different feelings going at once. It's a very complex situation. uh, finale.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you completely, Robbie, especially, you know, just in general with the movie, like trying to end it or a novel, like just trying to bring some sort of end. And especially with the horror genre, I find most of the time, and I might catch a lot of shit for this, but like one of the reasons I'm not really huge into Stephen King is because it always just feels like the ending is rushed where it's just like, well, I'll just kill everybody. And it's like, Jesus Christ. So you build up this huge freaking movie or you build up this huge story and it's just like, well, die. But with this one, and same with, like, The Shining and The Exorcist, where it, it, it seems like, okay, there. but you're left thinking, like, wait, the horror is still out there, you know? It, it is within everyone. Or the demon, like, not, not, not the horror, but maybe the demon, if whatever the demon may be, if it's a real, you know, biblical demon, or if it's just within us, you know, just being awful human beings is that it still exists and it is still among us and it walks at night, at day, and uh, with us at all times and we're susceptible to it.
0: That's one thing about this movie that I really love is that the bulk of the action happens during the day and yet it's still scary. Oh,
1: exceptionally scary. The cinematographer, I believe their name is... uh... Uta uh set, mostly natural lighting, framing the, uh, the different corridors and different cells and rooms in such a horrific way that you, for me, I forget every time, time I watch it that most of it is in broad daylight. But you guys both brought up really great points about just the ending, how the film kind of leans towards uh, a supernatural or demonic possession. But you're right, we all are weak and wounded. We as humans have the potential for violence. Um, We all have that kind of of buried within us that we might not want to acknowledge that sometime. And so that's what makes the movie so terrifying and human.
0: And bits of this story, too, were based on uh, real events. Did you know that? I didn't know this until...
1: I did not. I did not know that.
0: This is gruesome, um, but the, the film's plot was inspired by Richard Rosenthal, uh, the Richard Rosenthal case, a murder that took place in Boston where Anderson, the writer, grew up. In the mid-1990s, a man supposedly killed his wife after she accidentally burnt his dinner and then cut out her heart and lungs and put them in his backyard on a steak. Wait, say yeah. that
2: again? Wow. He, he accidentally burnt <laughs> I don't his want food. To. And so they cut out her ripped- heart
0: and lungs and put them on a steak in the backyard.
2: What was display. she making? What did she, uh, like, accidentally burn? I don't know. Like a
0: chicken man.
1: fried
2: steak? Well, you that's, you got to find out this kind of stuff. Because if it was, like, enchiladas or chicken fried steak, that, that seems completely normal.
1: Like, was it that good that her burning it was <laughs> worth all <laughs> yeah, that? Right.
2: Holy shit, my chicken pot pie. <laughs> you did this? Know. Oh, Lord. For,
1: if for a good chicken pot pie, I might have to, you know cost some trouble. <laughs> yeah,
2: no. I might have to de- decapitate. Yeah, no. Maybe cut somebody's head off no. my wife's heart
0: and put it on a plank. Oh, you guys are brutal. I'm the chef in our family. I hope this never happens no. to me. <laughs> well, just don't burn the food, Josh. They have made some terrible meals, Cody.
1: <laughs> just low and slow and everything will be fine. Yeah, low and slow.
0: Yeah, I'm making chili from now on and I'm always stirring it. I'm glad we came to our big takeaway of today, which is don't burn the dinner, guys. Just, just don't do it. Just don't do it. It's, is it too much to ask?
4: <laughs> Memento Mori is the premier oddities and curiosity shop located in Los Angeles. Visit us at 1507 Wilcox Avenue at Sunset Boulevard in the heart of Hollywood, Fridays through Sundays, 11 to 6 p.m. Or shop online at www.mementomori-la.com.
0: So this kind of brings me to my big question of the week. Every week I'm doing one big question and I'm putting it out on the Hell platform, which is this app that I'm using to to communicate with fans and friends of the show. And so I'll ask you guys first and then we'll hear from some listeners. What is your all time favorite horror movie? Uh, Robbie, you go first.
1: My all-time favorite horror movie and my favorite movie in general is John Carpenter's Halloween. I think it's just an absolutely perfect movie from start to finish. It's not the first slasher like like a lot of people tend to think that it is. I think black Christmas was first Texas chainsaw. They kind of started the, what turned into tropes and cliches, but uh, Halloween really honed a lot of those different elements into a very, very fine point. It's such a simple story, you know, a very, uh, economic screenplay and there's not too much exposition the atmosphere we were talking before about autumn and just how you know whether it's the midwest or uh here in the east it's just that kind of chill in the air with the leaves and the the jack lanterns and the costumes that can only mean one thing which is october 31st is not too far And um, just the character of Michael Myers and how he embodies pure evil and uh, the way that Dr. Loomis, uh, Donald Pleasance, he really is the way that we kind of meet that character and the way that we get to meet Michael, in a sense. He explains to us that he is uh, something separate from human. He is the very embodiment of evil and chaos. And he's come to this small town where he uh, grew up and murdered his sister. um, And everyone's in danger. It's just a Really wonderful film.
0: Yeah, if you haven't seen it, definitely give it a watch. It is one of the most ultimate classic horror. Mo- like when you think classic horror movie, it's hard for Halloween not to be in the top three of uh, of absolutely classic. That's great, uh, Cody. Is, is it still The Changeling?
1: I'm gonna go with Waterworld. Um, Kevin Costner. I'm not going to lie. You had me for a second. I was like, is this really <laughs> the, the best one? I'm smiling and nodding over here. But...
2: Yeah. Like, what <laughs> sure, <the hell>? buddy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Whatever you say, uh, Cody. Yeah. Waterworld is actually not a bad movie. But, um, I, I, you know, it goes back and forth between, like, Halloween, I, I love. Psycho is, like, one of the earlier movies that I saw as, like, a young kid that was, like, a, something I was introduced to. And then Dracula with Bella Lugosi, those kind of movies just – for the stuff like the first time I was ex- exposed to some sort of like horror and being like scared, but yeah, it I would have to say the one that I still like hold on to, uh, the changeling, uh, you know, Christine is up there. I just love the whole entire like the whole story of it, of where it starts off like very innocent and then also very like there's not a whole lot of sound, and then you get this tragedy. And then he's left in this huge place and then there's all these like bang then there's all this sound like there's an orchestra of sound inside this place and he has no idea and he's a musicianist and now he's got this whole orchestra of sounds that are going on, and he doesn't know what the hell. And he hasn't even really looked at the whole entire house, and then he discovers his room, and then he discovers his history of this whole entire like you know. <laughs> it it's, it's it. I it I, I love up. it.
0: You you had me watch it last year, and um, it, it does hold up. It is a great classic. Oh yeah. It Some people watch
2: does. it, they laugh at me. They go, "You find this scary?" And I'm like, "No, I don't know if I find it scary, but it for me, it's very like." Like also like the little music box that happens. Like I remember after watching it with my little sister uh, and my dad introduced me to it and then we had like a little music box and then everyone went to bed and then I I snuck out of my room and I turned the music box on and my sister comes, you know, running out of the room.
1: Mommy, daddy. (laughs) And she was making fun of me because I found the movie scary. Well, well, granted, like, you know, the the meaning of scary has changed so much. And now people tend to think as scary as like things that pop out or, but for me, like the uncanniness of the changeling, for instance, is what's terrifying about it. Things that just shouldn't be, like the fact that he actually goes to a bridge, throws the red ball over it, comes comes all (laughs) the way back to this empty, massive mansion. And what comes rolling down the stairs is the fucking ball. That's terrifying.
2: <laughs> yeah, and and the whole cinematography of watching it come down, and then also when they have the séance and the is just sitting there with the you know the séance oh my like, god vo- and then he the plays back the tape. I just always found like chilling, and I'd be like, oh, I want to be in a house like that. I want to, I want to, I want to live in a house like this.
1: Yeah, the Changeling. <laughs> that one I came to relatively not recently. That was probably ten years ago. But in terms of where I started watching classics, which was like probably ten years old, uh, the Changeling was. One of the latter ones that I ended up seeing, and it still terrified me. Maybe since I had headphones, so I'm every little whisper or something, I'm, I'm picking up. But um, it's a really beautiful film. And George C. Scott, I mean, like, not someone that you would expect in a horror movie, but he just is incredible in it.
0: I love when older actors allow themselves to then do horror. It's such a special treat where you get someone who's like really well-versed in in acting and then and then they get into the horror because so often we get these bad films and the stories are great, but like, you know, they just can't get anybody decent to do it or, you know, I don't know. They fall apart for different reasons. Part of the struggle of being a horror fan, my all-time favorite horror movie uh, is The Thing. I, yes. I like to think sometimes that it's poltergeist, but I think that whole holds a solid second because I don't have a poltergeist poster in my office, but I have two posters of the thing in my office. So Again, when I think classic, I think the thing, because it has a very simple story of there is something out there and it could be inside of all of us. And that is the entire plot. And then uh, the fun part is it's this cosmic horror where things are mutating and heads are coming off and crawling across the floor. And that, ah, Oh, I love practical effects. And I love things that are so bizarre that they explode your mind the first time you see them.
1: And the effects have not aged at at all. Really, I watched that movie recently and they still hold up beautifully in ways that films that were made last year just don't. And Poltergeist is another great one. That movie has such a strong emotional core, anything to do with uh, families if it's well told. That movie makes me cry every single time. The scene where Jo Beth Williams feels her daughter on her clothes when she's gone and she just wants to, you know, that, I, I can't, I can't deal with it.
0: Yeah. Beautiful film.
2: And then also, I think music has a lot to do with it. Poltergeist also has like this
1: entire orchestra behind it. it, it did John Williams do Poltergeist? Jerry Goldsmith was, was Poltergeist. okay, okay. Um, and he has like that kind of lullaby theme that goes throughout. And then by the end, yeah. it's all shrieking strings and a lot of brass. And I love a good horror score. And Ennio Morricone for the thing, another classic with John Carpenter as well. Um, I'm doing like those pulsating synths and stuff. And Session 9, for instance, also has a really interesting synthesizer score. It's not what you'd expect. It's not like the 80s uh, stuff that we've become accustomed to. It's very discordant and a lot of weird, just kind of almost howling keys that kind of go throughout.
0: What I love about the films that we've chosen just now um, as being part of this like the, this idea of classic is that they hold up just the same as uh, on, on the big screen in the movie theater as they would on a small 12-inch TV with a VHS player attached to the bottom. The experience is the same. They're just as scary whether they're large or small, loud or quiet. Uh, they just are. They just are. And you don't get that a lot these days.
1: They're great stories, yeah. I went and saw Old. I'm seeing it on Monday night, I think.
0: I I hope you get a busy audience because I I do think the film is greatly improved by rowdy people. Um, I sat with my drag queen brother-in-law and we just talked the entire movie and that was the vibe of the whole audience and it worked so well because uh, I obviously won't spoil anything since it's a new movie. I don't think it's particularly genius in any way. It's just a ton of fun. So if you go in, Robbie, with the idea of like, I'm I'm just doing this for fun. I'm not doing this as a movie reviewer. I'm not doing this for any sort of deep uh, existential meaning. I'm just having fun. It's going to be great. You're going to have a good time.
1: Awesome. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Well, this is the part of the show where we like to hear from you, listeners. So here's what people had to say on Hi-Ho this week about their favorite horror movies.
1: Hey, Josh, great to see you. Uh, My
2: favorite is Still Scream. I love that movie. I saw it in theaters in 96. I still like... I just love everything about that movie. It's still been my favorite for so, so long, and then I happened to meet and get to know the producer, so now I'm kind of even closer. I to touch the actual mask from the movie, which is really fun.
4: Man, I, I remember renting Scream and trying to see Scream 2 in theaters. Maybe I did, but I was in like freshman year of high school or something. I need to revisit those. But yeah, Eyes Wide Shut, I'd call that a thriller. Suspense, gotta love The Shining, though. Dan, those are all genius. Ending on The Shining, and after The Shining, maybe Evil Dead. Hi, Joshua. Poltergeist
3: is probably in my top five, definitely. Such a good movie. You know what else I just thought of is Hellraiser, the first one. I mean, so demented,
4: but so good. I was just remarking to AJ that we had never seen Hellraiser. And like, we don't understand the whole deal. So I was gonna watch it, and then she's like, Don't watch it without me. We love horror movies. <laughs> we, we don't rewatch horror movies, we, we try to get fresh horror up in our lives. So I saw Hellraiser uh, two days after I left that message, and I was pretty delightfully surprised because the majority of the film doesn't really focus on Pinhead. You barely see them at all. I kept thinking to myself, What needs to be on the, the cover and the posters is this hor- horrible skeletal man. <laughs> Locked in a room. I think that's uh, really intriguing and scary. And I wish I knew that's what like half the film was about.
3: My favorite actually is the very first Hellraiser. Reason being, it was a very unique story, and it it, it, it didn't fall under the same category as how the rest of that franchise happened. You know, where they focus so much on Pinhead and his you know crazy journey. But uh, just the story of the first movie was very very
4: good. Go to horror movie for me, the one I reach for the most that I can watch a thousand times, is probably Rosemary's Baby. I mean, one of my favorite movies is Jaws, and Jaws is
3: is a horror movie, I think. Uh, like more horror on your side, like on like that true horror, like uh, Exorcist, Psycho, things of that nature. This isn't really scary or anything, is uh, The Quiet Place. I think it's such a well-paced movie, and it's just so cool, and I think everything about it was so unique and different and like it was still like it, it wasn't scary but it kept me like anticipating to see what happened next
4: my go-to horror movie is
3: probably fantastic planet which i don't know genre-wise if that's even correct but it's scary
2: my favorite go-to horror movie and i actually was just thinking about this today is ghosts of mars and i i Is it technically considered a horror movie? I'm not really sure, but I think it's just wild as hell. And I just absolutely love it. And I remember,
4: I don't know why I did it, but I remember buying the DVD for my brother thinking he would like it. He totally did not. But anyways, I tried to convert him, but yeah, Ghosts of Mars, love it. As you were posing the question, I was thinking to myself, it might be Poltergeist. And then you pull up Poltergeist and now I'm feeling like, can I say Poltergeist? And yeah, I can say Poltergeist. Otherwise it's the thing and I, you know, I love the thing, but I, I don't throw it on all the time like Poltergeist. Recently, it's It Follows. I've watched it a number of times in the last five years. <sighs> it just holds tension, uh, and I never get tired of seeing the different forms that the creature shows up in, who, uh, yeah, I love the rules of that one. I want more of that. I want a It Follows series. The Omen, the first one, Gregory Peck, classic, just
0: rewatched it, still holds up. It's amazing. I love you know, I'm not a
3: slasher movie guy, but that one, it's like drama and uh, just really great. Just a great story. So anyway, that's my pick. What's up, Josh? Joe Dove from the Dis Dungeon Podcast, friend of Haunting Season. I loved your last one, by the way. It really hit me because I am a huge folklore dude. So we'll get into that another time. So anyway, the horror movie that really did me in was Hellraiser, the first one. I think it's the the melting or the reforming body that came from the, the s- floorboards. Frank, so to speak, creeped me the hell out. And then the interdimensional beings, the Cinnabites, coming into the picture with the distorted voices. Oh, man. Like I I remember being really, really little, watching it and being like, ah! And freaked out and shut it off and was like, ah, I got to wait until I'm older. And then trying it again a year later, ah! I freak out, turn it off. It's freaky. And then when I become a teenager, I finally got to watch the whole thing, and I was like, Oh wow, why? why was I so scared? And then like the last couple of scenes, like, Oh, that's why. But I absolutely adore Hellraiser. And then this the series just got insane. But I love Doug Bradley. I love Clive Barker. His original ideas are amazing. He's one of the best writers that's out there for horror. And yeah, that's my favorite
0: the movie that has probably scared me the most that I've actually finished uh, has been It, the remake. I tried to sit through Babadook one night with my brother and my best friend, but couldn't sit through it, had to cover my eyes the whole time. But It, the remake, scared me so badly. My friend and I went to see
3: it during the day for a matinee, and I left the theater, and he had to go to work. I had to call my mom. I was so scared. And she stayed on the phone with me for like five minutes, and I didn't tell her that I was scared, but... She had to go and so
0: yeah it terrified me and i saw it everywhere after that
4: my favorite movie
0: or favorite scary movie is a uh, nightmare on elm street or at least my favorite movie series
2: i think it resonates with me just because it shows you how terrifying your dreams can be if you choose to continue living in your dreams instead of your own reality
0: thank you friends for contributing your voices to the show i love hearing what everyone has to say If you're feeling jealous and want to put your voice in the Haunting Season episode, download the HiHo app for free. There's no ads, no hidden fees. I don't work for them. It's just an app that launched recently that I think is really cool and allows us to have conversations through video messaging about stuff that we're really interested in. I'm posting once a week and using the replies in my show, and I'd love to hear from you, listener. And if you don't want to do a video, just block out your face. Send some audio while I look at your ceiling or a black void or something. Well, thank you so much for listening. This has been our show today. I want to thank you again, Robbie. Robbie, where can people find your stuff?
1: You can find me at Instagram.com slash Robbie, R-O-B-B-Y underscore horror. Or you can go to my website, Robbie Horror all one word, dot com.
0: And I highly, highly recommend it because, uh, like I said at the beginning of the pod, and as you've heard actually throughout this entire podcast, uh, Robbie, your, your insights and your views in horror are more than just surface level. They are uh, personal and wonderful to read. So thanks. And, and we got to have you back on the show. This is so much fun.
1: Thank you so much, you guys. I would be thrilled to do that, for sure.
0: And Cody, you want to say bye?
2: Uh, yeah, adios. Uh, again, I just started following Robbie's uh, Instagram page, and it's highly enlightening. And uh, I I think I've been on there s- for about a week or two, and I, I just, I, I, I'm going through, like, well, one, you did the little Halloween thing today, and then and now I'm going way back, and I, I'm just, like, delighted by uh, how much passion and, you know how much you care about the horror
1: and how much it like uh, influences you thank you guys so much that means a lot coming from you guys
0: that's it for today's show stay tuned after the credits for how you can get more involved in Haunting Season Haunting Season is written and created by Joshua Sterling Bragg and is a joint production of Matt Geelan and Believe Limited thank you to our very special guest Robbie Horror you can find him by searching the username R-O-B-B-Y underscore horror on Instagram and of course thanks to Cody of the Living our very special friend of the show this episode was executive produced by Matt Gillen, Ryan Gillen, and Patrick James Lynch with creative support from Cody Dugan, Jessica Richmond, Mel Forrest, and my wife, Courtney Barber. Hunting Seasons editor is Colby Crow, and she uses music made for the show by North Innsbruck. You can find different content from Hunting Season on all of our platforms. YouTube has scary stories, Instagram has spooky photos and updates, TikTok has horror movie recommendations and reviews, and we're now on the app Hi Ho where you can contribute to the podcast with your own voice. Hop into the conversation and get personal replies from Josh. Have something to send Josh yourself? Well, we've got a P.O. box now. Send anything cursed, weird, witchy, or just plain fun, and he'll add it to his shelf of oddities and shout you out on TikTok. Send stuff to P.O. Box 9681, Glendale, California, 91226. Thanks for listening, friends, and remember, we're more likely to survive if we stick together. I'll see you next time.